In this letter, Paul is seeking to address deep concerns that have arisen over the Corinthian church. False teachers have come in, some perhaps even emerging from amongst the, the eldership in that church, and the whole ethos of these men and their ministry is wrong. Effervescent personalities, captivating or oration and public speaking, larger-than-life characters. Be careful when the church gets caught up in things that the world thinks are necessary if you want to be a dynamic leader. God doesn't do things the world's way. And if you haven't yet noticed, the world doesn't tend to want to do things God's way either. Now, not only have these people come into the church in Corinth, but they're seeking to push Paul out. They're trying to discredit him. And of course, Paul's greater concern far greater than his own reputation, is that in abandoning him, they'll be exchanging the gospel and the Jesus that he preached for an alternative gospel and an alternative Jesus, which is no gospel at all. Because there is only one true gospel and anything else is not the gospel. And so Paul is forced to defend himself and the motives and the methods of his ministry and the very message that he preached for the sake of these believers because he wants to keep them in the faith. So let's listen to what he has to say next and let's listen carefully because we're about to see something of how Paul thinks about certain issues and these ought to be issues that we think about and the way Paul thinks about them is the way we ought to think about them. Because this is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking under the command of God. Now we'll break the, this second half of 2 Corinthians 5 down into three sections as we did this morning. And first of all we're going to look at verses 11 to 15. And we're going to look at them under the, under the heading fear and love. Fear and love. Now, in the New King James Version, it says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, but I'm going to turn that into the word fear, the fear of the Lord. Whenever Paul writes, you often find that as he travels down one particular road of thought, he, he hits a topic which kind of strikes a spark and he makes a connection over here uh, and he gathers that thought in and presents that to us as well. He's been thinking about himself at the judgment seat before Christ in verse 10. And he's brought to our attention the, own, the great heartache and burden that he carries that one day he knows he's going to meet with Christ face to face and his great longing is that he will meet Christ as one who has been a faithful and worthy servant. And it's that, 
and this very high regard that Paul has for God, which is driving him on in his gospel ministry, despite all the things that could have caused him to lose heart and, frankly, just to give up and throw in the towel. But he hasn't. He's kept going. Now, where we have the word terror in our New King James versions, I'm not actually convinced that terror is a good word to use there. I think fear is a much better word, and some of you might have a translation open in front of you where it does indeed use the word fear. The Greek word, the root of the word, is phobos, from which we get the word phobia. And it's used in a number of different contexts, but it's always used, well, it's nearly always used, uh, with the translation fear. So, for example, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 50, God's mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Chapter 12, verse 5 of Luke, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And then in Acts chapter 9 at verse 31, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, in those words, we can see there can be an element of terror. There's particularly an element of terror if you're an unbeliever and you fall into the hands of the living God. That's a terrifying place to be in your sin. But in the context of the Christian, which is how Paul is speaking here in verse 11, he's writing a letter to Christians. I think it's much more this reverent and awe-filled fear of the Lord that Paul is referring to here. This deep sense of respect and reverence for God. This one who is the sovereign and almighty one. The God who's chosen and appointed Paul. The God to whom Paul is accountable. Before whom he will one day stand and give an account of his service to his king. Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord. Being very, very conscious of who it is we're serving. Who it is we're representing in this world. I think that's what Paul has in mind at the beginning of verse 11. The Lord has made Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. What a responsibility God has laid upon him. So he says, because of that, we persuade men. We persuade men. Persuade? What does he mean? Well, in Acts chapter 18, we find the account of Paul at Corinth when during a period of 18 months, the church was established there. And at verse 4 of Acts 18, we read that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So we read of him reasoning and we read of him persuading. But what was it that Paul was actually doing and saying? Well, we're not left to guess. And we're not left to make it up for ourselves. Was he presenting all kinds of clever arguments 
was he debating with them every issue under the sun? I don't believe he was. In fact, I know he wasn't. And I'll tell you why. Because in Acts chapter 17, we're actually given more insight into what was going on when Paul was reasoning and persuading. Listen to Acts chapter 17 from verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now that's very significant. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. What does Paul mean when he talks about reasoning and persuading? He was opening up to them the Old Testament. Just like Jesus did with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And he was teaching them all about Christ from the Bible. That's what he was doing. That's what his reasoning with them was. Opening up the Old Testament and showing them Christ. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the opening verses. Jesus, the one who died for our sins, was buried and who rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's what it was Paul was doing. And later, in Acts chapter 17, Paul's in Athens. And there we read this from verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily and with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So we don't have to guess what it was that Paul was doing when he was reasoning with people and trying to persuade them. His whole focus was the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he did was about bringing people to Christ and bringing Christ to them. Now when Paul speaks about persuading men, you say, I don't think he was trying to tackle every subject and knock down every single argument that people might bring under the sun and win every single argument that people were bringing against him. He wasn't allowing them to lead him off on all kinds of tangents and down blind alleyways. He had one theme only, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Let me speak of Christ let me tell you who he is and why he came, what was promised, how it's all been fulfilled in him, 
what he has done, where he is now, what will happen when he returns, and what you must decide. Reasoning, persuading, but the whole focus of everything Paul said was the Lord Jesus Christ. Getting people to make a decision about Christ, that is gospel ministry. That's the work of evangelism. That is gospel witnessing. And Paul says, God knows that this has been my heart and my ministry. He says, God knows. God knows. And when you Corinthians, just pause for a moment. Remember how it was when I first came amongst you. And your own consciences will confirm it. That was who I was. That was the message I preached. That's exactly what I did. Now these false teachers who've come amongst the Corinthian church, they glory in appearance. We know that because of the little comment he makes at the end of verse 12, because he's constantly making little references as he contrasts himself against the false teachers. Boast on our behalf. In other words, let people know uh, what it was that we did amongst you. Let, it, let people know how it was we ministered the gospel to you. Let people know what the message was that we came with. That you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. The false teachers who've come amongst the Corinthian church glory in appearance. It's all about how it looks, how it sounds, how it feels. Are you tempted to think that's important? There are many students who've arrived in Liverpool over the last month. Sadly, too many of them have been led down this false path. That church is all about how it looks, how it sounds, how it feels. And so they leave home, they come to a new city, they start looking for a church. And the top three things they're looking for is how it looks, how it sounds, and how it feels. Good music, coffee and donuts make the best church apparently. Paul says, verse 12, you need to be able to answer people like that because they're wrong. Very up to date, this book, isn't it? If you're going to glory in anything in Corinth, it should be that God was able to use this rather pathetic looking little man, Paul through whom God has worked in amazing power and wonderful grace and led you to Christ. That's the kind of thing we need to be looking for. That's what should concern local churches, that God has been at work amongst us, that God has been in our midst, in his grace and in his power, leading people to Christ. 
Now, Paul says in verse 13, there are times when I can appear to be getting quite carried away with it all, he says. I think there were times, you know, when Paul actually dared to get a bit excited about the gospel, dared to get a bit excited when he spoke about Christ. And perhaps at times, maybe even seemed a little excessive, perhaps a little bit uh, over the top, maybe, because this really was the only thing he ever wanted to talk about to people. But that's just because of how my heart is before God, he says. And of how desperately I want people to come to Christ. It's just a mark of how desperately I want people to know him. But at the same time, it might often seem that actually I'm quite solemn. And very deep. And very thorough. And that's because trusting in Christ involves the mind. There are things you need to know. Trusting in Christ involves the understanding. And that's what I want for you. I want you to know. And I do what I do, says Paul, because I'm constrained by the love of Christ. Verses 14 and 15. So the Apostle Paul has this great fear of the Lord, this this great sense of awe and wonder before God and the responsibility that's been laid on his shoulders. And alongside that, he's constrained by the love of Christ. It compels us, it constrains us. Now, what does he mean in verses 14 and 15 where he talks about if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying Christ died for me, and I died with Christ. What he's actually talking about here is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I'm now living in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm no longer my own man. How can I be? Christ died for me and I died with him. And the love of Christ has completely transformed me and it compels me. This is the Saviour who loves me, who died for me. And my old sinful self died with him. And now I live for him. How can I do otherwise when he loved me like that? He's my Lord and my King. How can I not do that which he's called me to do? The love that I've been shown in Christ compels me. Now it seems that by contrast to that, the false teachers in Corinth were motivated by the fear of failure and love of themselves. But Paul shows us that a A true gospel minister, a true follower of Christ, every genuine Christian is not motivated by fear of failure and love of themselves, but is motivated by the fear of God and the love of Christ. And that's what drives Paul on. And that's what will drive you on and me. So fear and love. And then secondly, old and new. Old and new, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, but now 
That's not how we know him anymore. Because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now, Paul is saying, I used to hate Christ. And he did, didn't he, with a passion. And Paul used to hate all who followed Christ. Paul despised the gospel and he despised the church. The message of Christ was loathsome to him. And it went against everything that he loved and stood for when he was Saul of Tarsus. That's how it is for sinful flesh. To regard things according to the flesh means to see and view and think about everything from the position of being lost in your trespasses and sins and from the position of being outside of Christ and outside of his kingdom. Now to understand this, you only have to look at the changes in morality and sexuality that have gripped our own nation over the last few decades and which for many continue to be a major talking point. This is because most people in this world regard all of these things according to the flesh and they don't look at these things according to God. Why do we not feel and think the same way as the world? It's because we don't now think according to the flesh because we've changed, haven't you? In Christ, like Paul, we no longer regard things according to the flesh. One day everything changed for Paul and for you if you're a Christian and for me. God turned our world right side up because it had been upside down. And now we're starting to view everything through Christ-like eyes. And we're starting to think about things the way Christ thinks about them. Not perfectly, but there's been a very marked change nonetheless. All of the Christian's thoughts and values and priorities and affections and ambitions have changed. Beliefs and behaviours have been completely turned around. And Paul says, I do what I do and I preach what I preach because God in Christ has made me a new creature. I'm not the old Saul of Tarsus anymore. I'm Paul, an apostle and slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what God loves. I hate what God hates. I've been filled with the same kind of compassion for the lost that Jesus demonstrated when he walked this earth. All the old things have passed away. Oh, the wonder of it all that must have come to Paul's heart and mind when he thought of how he used to be the one who persecuted the church of Christ. It's all passed away and all things have become new. How his heart must have rejoiced as he wrote this down. Me, Paul, the persecutor of the church, now a preacher of the gospel. Who'd have thought it? Well, God did. God did. And Paul emphasises the radical work that God does in the life of a sinner. Only God can do that. God doesn't simply dust us off and wipe us down and says, there, there, off you go and try and do better. <laughs> no, he makes us new. We're born again. The old is gone. You need to remind yourself of that. 
in all the decisions that you make, in all your relationships, in your homes, in how you apply yourself at school or at work, how you spend your leisure time, your commitment to and involvement in the local church, no longer according to the flesh, because you're a new creation in Christ. That's what marks you out in this world. Paul is saying, I used to have a Christ-less heart, a Christ-less mind, and I used to have Christless eyes and mouth and hands and ears and feet, but no longer. Going back to one of my points this morning, this is what lies at the heart of your choosing to do that which is good. Because you no longer look at, look at things according to the flesh. So it is for every Christian. Because everything now has Christ at the centre of it all. Doesn't it? The old and the new. And then finally, point three, Paul talks about commission and imploration. There's a new word for you. Verses 18 to 21, we'll come on to that in a moment. Don't forget, says Paul, I'm under a royal commission. All things are of God. This is all God's doing. I've been assigned to a very specific task. And one of the tasks that Paul has is that of imploration. We implore people to be reconciled to God. All things are of God. And Paul is emphasizing the fact again that he didn't set himself up in ministry. God has been the source and the director, if you like, of everything that's happened to Paul. And God has commissioned him into the role that he's now fulfilling. How is it that anyone becomes a new creation? You didn't do it to yourself. You didn't manage even to come to the decision that you needed to, bo to be born again on your own. You needed help even with that. God reconciled you to himself and he did it in Christ, verse 19, because Jesus Christ is God. Here is where the gospel stands in stark opposition to all other forms of religion. In other forms of religion, God is up here and here is what you must do to work your way up to God. In the gospel, God looks down upon a sinful world and he is filled with mercy and compassion and grace and he moves and he does everything necessary in order to redeem us and to save us from our sin. We're the ones who've greatly offended him. We're the ones who've transgressed his law. We are the ones who ought to be putting things right with God. We're the ones who ought to be recon reconciling ourselves to him. But we never could. Given all eternity, we'd never do it. We lack the will to do it. We lack the desire to do it. We lack the capacity to do it. 
we lack the capability to do it. In our sins, we don't stand a chance. But such is God's love and grace. He has stepped in and he has come down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's reconciled us to himself. He's made us right. Well, how has he done that? Well, these verses wonderfully tell us, don't they? First, he's purposed not to deal with us the way our sins deserve. Verse 19, not imputing our trespasses to us. He doesn't treat us the way our sins deserve. In other words, he shows us mercy. And then a wonderful exchange takes place. He places our sin and guilt upon Christ. Verse 21, the sinless one who knew no sin has been made sin for us, which he then bore on the cross. And we receive from God the very righteousness of Christ himself, making us acceptable to God. And it's by means of this exchange that God reconciles sinners to himself. All my sins put to Christ, all Christ's righteousness put to me. This is what happened to me, says Paul in verse 18. We've been reconciled. And this message, this gospel, this good news, this is the thing that God now has committed to me to preach and to pass on to everybody else. This gospel is a word of reconciliation. You can be forgiven all of your sins. You can be made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, but only through him. In the city of London, there are 166 foreign embassies. Buildings where other countries have their own officials in residence who represent their nation here in the UK. Those embassies are, in a way, officially seen as being part of that country, which is why the diplomats who work there have immunity. If you ever enter one of those buildings, it is a little bit like being on foreign soil. The ambassador is the chief honcho in the office He's the official representative of that nation's government here in the UK. The ambassador does not speak and act on their own behalf. They speak and act on behalf of the government. They say what their government wants them to say. That's me in this world, says Paul. Christ's ambassador. An ambassador speaks on behalf of another. And that other is speaking through the ambassador. The voice of the preacher is, in that sense, the voice of God. That's a sobering thought, I can tell you. But of course, that can only be true if the preacher is a genuine preacher of the genuine gospel. I am, says Paul, whereas many of these others you've been listening to are not. Paul has this great commission from God to be his ambassador and to undertake this work of imploration, to implore people. 
I wrote down the word imploration as I was preparing and then I thought, is that actually even a word? I wasn't sure. So I got my dictionary out and had a look. And it is. I thought, maybe I've invented a word, but I haven't. It's already there. Imploration. We often use the word preach. We're often told it means to herald the good news, which it does, proclaim. I don't often hear anyone using the word imploration, but it's a great shame. It's a great sounding word, isn't it? Well, what a glorious thing it is to do. You see, that's what preaching the gospel and about sharing Christ has to entail. I implore you, I am pleading with you, because what I'm telling you demands a response. Christ demands a response. Now, our commission is not identical to the one that Paul received. His was quite unique as an apostle, but we still have a commission today. This work of imploration continues today. It does so through the church. It does through the lives and mouths of God's people. This week, God can use you to implore people to consider Christ. Are you going to let him do it? The Lord Jesus Christ demands a response. Be reconciled to God through him. God has done the reconciling already through the work of Christ. But will you, in conviction of your sin, turn to him and by faith acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and King? Will you, by faith in Christ, Receive that which Christ has secured for you on your behalf at Calvary. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He or she is a new creation. All the old is gone. There are people in this world who are desperate, desperate, desperate for all the old to be gone. And in Christ it can be. And it will be. And if you're a Christian it is. And all things have become new. And we plead with you, through Christ, be reconciled to God.